With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So our next guest, I'm very, I'm very happy to, to present our next guest. Uh, our guest this week is the author of the empowering series of books called Ordaining Reality, The Science Behind the Power of Positive Thinking. We've all ha- uh, heard about the law of attraction, and it's not so hard to find uh, books and, and stuff out there, and, and, and I know all of you out there are shaking your head right now because they're everywhere. Um, but it's been my experience, uh, and this is just my opinion, uh, that with most of these law of attraction products, all they really attract is uh, the money from your wallet, um, and you don't really get much out of them. Um, so, again, I'm very excited to share this work with all of you. Um, it really it really is not one of those law of attraction fairy tale stories, okay? But it's a real look into what really makes it work. Uh, most importantly, it'll give you the tools to make it work for you. So without uh, so without further ado. I'd like to welcome Mr. Joseph E. Dolan to the show. Hi, Justin. Can you hear me? Yes, sir. How are you today? Excellent. Excellent. Good, thank you. Good, thank you. I'm, I'm very happy well. to have you here. Yes, I'm doing well, except the Red Sox are being clobbered by the Yankees, but what can you do? <laughs> I, I guess as a Red do, Sox right? fan, you have to get used to that. <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah. You know. I, I'm from the West Coast, so I, you know, I really can't share your pain. Uh, I understand. I understand. As I'm a Giants fan. <laughs> well, I'm delighted to be on the show, and uh, and thank you very much for that wonderful introduction. Um, you know, I didn't know whether you wanted me to start talking a little bit about the book or whether you had some particular questions, and I know well, why that... Don't you, why don't you let everyone know, just, just kind of tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, sure, sure. You know? I'll do that. I'll do that. And also... Uh, the show is on for, you know, close to two hours, so I'm sure there's going to be some questions on the part of the audience, and we will try to get to them, uh, to those questions, you know, as they, uh, as they come in. Um, sure. Well, first of all, you know, you mentioned and kind of contrasted my work, which I appreciate, with some of the other books that are out there, and, and I'm certainly not slamming those books, but this is fairly unique in the regard that I believe that there is a real connection between thinking and having events change. Um, But if you had a background in physics, which I happen to have, and you had a lot of association with folks that are in in the field of physics, they would be the first to tell you, and years and years ago, I would have been one of them, to say that there, there is no laws of physics that would be able to support a connection. So in kind of telling you a little bit about myself, I'd also tell you a little bit about the research in the book. I just firmly believed, uh, based on a number of events that occurred in my life, either I witnessed them firsthand or I actually experienced them, where I said, that's just too much to be an exper- you know, a, a coincidence. So that was the, that was the struggle, uh, you know, believing that there was some, some way that thinking things were making things happen and not being able to explain it. So I actually went on about a 30-year quest 
to understand this. And, and, and interestingly enough, and probably importantly enough, and, you know, you probably don't have too many physicists in the audience, but uh, it wasn't so much all breakthrough work on my end because the laws of physics themselves were actually evolving during this 30 years. So I, you know, I was kind of like riding the leading edge of it and, and maybe taking some of them and going a little bit, you know, going to the, like the next level. But, uh, but the laws of physics are kind of evolving along to, you know, to help uh, make some of the, uh, you know, some of the connections between thinking and, and, uh, and actual changing of, uh, of, of future events. Right. Physics is always changing. I mean, that's kind of the cool thing about it. I think it's yes. always being, you know, it's always being challenged, and it, and it's always being, uh, you know, every once in a while somebody comes along every, every uh, you know, decade or a couple yep. decades or so, and, and and really makes those guys think, really puts guys like you to the task and says, now now what about this? And you know exactly, exactly. Well, you know, an interesting little tidbit about that. It was about 150 years ago that the field of physics uh, was at kind of a uh, kind of a stale spot, you know, stale stale period. And right. the pundits, the, the pundits of physics, actually recommended that students don't bother getting into physics because all they're going to ever do in the, for the rest of their lives is perhaps is perhaps add a couple of decimal places, right. you know, to some of the existing laws. And then all of a sudden, some major new breakthroughs, you know, were uncovered. And before you know it, it the whole thing was turned up on its heels. And, you know, that was about 15, 20 years before Einstein and, you know, and everything else. And, and no one's looked back since. And I'll tell you, it, you know, we actually discover more that we don't know at a faster rate than what we do know. So it is pretty fascinating. It's very fascinating in that regard. It is. And, and you know, what fascinates me um, is, is the fact that that you know I just want everybody to understand that, that you know uh, the first thing that jumped out for me with this work is is the fact that metaphysics is one thing, science is another, but but here right now we're talking about a bridge to to both. Absolutely, absolutely. In fact, to be honest with you, you took the words right out of my right out of my mouth. As I was saying that. You know, it's not just that physics has, has evolved. It's also that, uh, well, metaphysics has evolved, but more importantly, physics has evolved to actually, you know, that there is a confluence between physics and metaphysics. In fact, to be honest with you, the two are becoming one as you go further down the road. And, uh, and that was part of, my, part of my theory was to pretty much extrapolate, you know, where they were going to end up in the direction they were already going. Right, and fascinating stuff. And I, and I really hope it does. I hope that I'm alive long enough uh, in this lifetime to to see them come together more. Because yeah, you know, there's all kinds of different folks out there. Um, there's all kinds of different metaphysics. There's all different kinds of theories about metaphysics. There's all different kinds of practicing, and and I mean, it just it's endless. It never ever stops. But the one thing that turns me off on a lot of this stuff is that it's not really based in at all in reality. Um, even faintly it's not based in, you know and and you know, to me I can't put a lot of I can't put a lot of myself into something if I can't uh, ground it, if I can't uh, you know, 
internalize it because I'm grounded. I, you know, I live here right now. We're all here right now on this earth, whether we like it or not, uh, whether we believe there are other worlds, whether we believe there are other dimensions. We are here right now. So, you know, that's that's what I want to see happen. I want to see it, you know, start to come more real. And and I can only right. hope that, that, that there's be more guys out there like you um, that that are going to kind of help start mixing this stuff together. Right. Exactly. Well, you know, one of the first things you really need to do is to define reality before we start talking about, you know, creating it. You know, one sure. of the things you mentioned about metaphysics, and and this, in a way, gives metaphysics a bad name, and, and I must say justifiably so, because when you talk about physics, Western physics, uh, you know, whether you agree with Western physics or not, you're actually putting, your, your you know, an umbrella around a whole set of laws that are actually called the, the, the standard model, okay? So there's, that's what physicists now believe. And it's parts made up of Newton and parts made up of Maxwell and parts made up of Einstein and parts made up of several of the, of the uh, quantum mechanics all coming together to solve things. Now, whether they're right or wrong, you, you, can, you can put your arms around it and say, that's physics. Metaphysics, boy, oh boy, that is kind of amorphous because it gets into some strange new age stuff, it gets into the occult, it gets into a lot of things that folks say are metaphysical. Well, right. you know, it begins to stretch. It begins to stretch that, and, and that is part of the problem. Uh, we're, we're talking about things that get kind of, you know, really far-fetched. Right. But, but it doesn't, you know, it's the old expression about let's not throw the baby out the, uh, with the, with the bathwater or whatever. And, and, and so there's an awful lot of two metaphysics that's very, very valuable. But an awful lot of the maybe unscrupulous people are looked at as a, uh, a very, very fertile field, if you would, you know, to, uh, to, to ply whatever kind of uh, crazy trade that they have, just to, as you said earlier, you know, Justin, to maybe attract some money. Right. Or for whatever betterment they want to make of themselves without having any grounded reality. Right, and you know, it it gets it gets really murky and it gets really really confusing, um, mm -hmm. uh, to you know to say the least. Right. Um, it's it, it's impossible to keep track of. It is, uh, you know. So so you know we're kind of forced. Uh, you know, David and I, for example, could could do a show that focuses on on one thing that we're both good at. Uh, however, that's not going to do everybody anything good because all they're ever going to hear about is uh, that one thing. So, you know, that's why we we kind of get beyond what we know. We kind of get beyond our comfort level and, and bring folks on like you and, 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 and all of our other guests that kind of help us, you know, reach out there and, and try to touch everyone. But there's just too much stuff out there, um, you know, and, and for me the key is, Again, it gets back to, make, to to making it more real, making it more tangible, bringing it, you know, to a point where we can see it, you know, and experience it and not just dream it. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, it, it is interesting, you know, about that because, you know, I mean, well, I, I almost don't know where to start here because the, you know, one thing is to kind of understand the concept of the physical and the metaphysical, you know, and... And one of the ways, it's difficult to explain because the concept of the physical actually can be explained in words. The concept of the metaphysical can't be explained in words. I mean, even Zen masters, 
have to nod at each other in agreement because they couldn't even use words to describe, you know, what they feel because words themselves actually, uh, you know, actually confuse what it is that they're trying to do. It's, you know, the, the best analogy I can make, and it's a very apt analogy, is that if you ever had a very, very bizarre dream, very bizarre dream, and you woke up and you knew we had a very bizarre dream, and you're going to now, you know, explain it to your wife or, who, you know, whoever's right there. And as soon as you go to articulate the dream, it's evaporating. Then you stop. It's still in your head. And then you go to speak it some more, and it goes away. And, and the reason for that, as I get into quite a bit in the book, is, is how the two brain hemispheres work. You've dreamt it, and you dreamt it in kind of an unbounded metaphysical realm of the brain, which is the right brain. But when you actually go to articulate it or to be able to explain it to somebody, it has to go through the rational thinking left brain. And that's, you know, and therein, therein lies the, uh, where, where the physical and the metaphysical are really, or, uh, you know, the, the origin of them is a right brain, left brain thinking type of look at nature. And, uh, and, and the other way, to, the other way to, to think of it, and again, I went to this in maybe about 20 pages, so it's, I'm going to give you a real synopsis, is that in the, in the world of the physical, you know, something is or it is not. So it's either it is it either is or it isn't, and in the world of the metaphysical, so it's 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 this or that. So in other words, you get the conjunction or. In the metaphysical, right. it is this and this. So in other words, something uh, and they always use the expression, something could be a carrot or a rock, and you say there is no difference. It's how you interpret it. Right. You know, kind of think of that that little picture you may look at with a vase. Uh, and then you go look at it again, and it's really two pretty maidens, you know, side by side, you know, or whatever. And, you, and, you, and then you see, it, and then you see it again at the vase, you know. And it's like, which is it? Well, it's really both. And that's the struggle. That's the struggle that Western physicists were having, recognizing that things are in fact in the eyes of the beholder. But you have to stop me as I get too far into some of these things. No, no, it's it's quite all right. I just uh, Big D, you with us? Yes, yes, I'm here. All right. Good afternoon, Mr. Donald. Hey, Sorry David. I'm late. Sorry, I'm late, Joe. That's right, David. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. We're having thunderstorms here, power outage and whatnot. Oh, nice, nice. Everyone, I just want you to know, you, this is uh this is this is perfect proof that. that that even David can be stopped by a thunderstorm. Oh no! <laughs> for long. I didn't even think it was possible. <laughs> there you go. There's the so, proof. There, there's the proof. See, I just had to look at it in a scientific way, I guess, huh? Mm. I had to bring, I had to bring lightning and thunder and see if it would disconnect him. So, so we've kind of got into, into you know, some of the underlying, you know things about, you know, what makes metaphysics, why, you know, why, what kind of makes reality, and, and, and we kind of talked about, uh, you know, it, it's basically perception for the most part on one side, and on the other side it's what you can see, you know, see, touch, smell, taste. What, right. Joe, where, where does, what brings these two, what brings these two sides together? I've always kind of been curious. You know, we've sure. all experienced both sides every day in our lives, and, and and a lot of times we can't even explain, you know, why it happens. And then and then sometimes we're lucky enough to to 
to have uh, all these things come together in our lives, even if it's just for a brief moment? What what kind of things bring these two together to to, to help empower us? Yeah, well, that's an excellent question. Well, <clears throat> first of all, you know, one of the things that we as humans have evolved, and basically our brains have evolved to a point where we actually do have both dimensions. Now, if you go down the, you know, down the chain, uh, you know, all the way down to maybe a rock and then all the way back up to humans, you know, you'll see different gradations. And, uh, and, and let me tell you that the, you know, certainly the lower forms of, of, of animal life don't have these um, additional experiences that we have. So pretty much, you know, even, even a dog, and pretty much a dog is experiencing the physical world. And, and in fact, and a dog is experiencing that at a, at a heightened ability beyond our ability, you know, to smell and, and maybe not see, but certainly, you know, uh, sense, feel, and blah, blah, blah. And they also have a very, very uh, pictorial type of uh, memory so they can remember where they were at different places by how things look. But at any rate, when, as we evolve, we actually reach this other, this other you know, plane of existence, if you would. And, and you know, it, it, but we have, we're, we're grounded all the time with our senses. So that you know, if we can see it, touch it, feel it, smell it, you know, taste it. These are these are inputs to us, and we need them because we can't be just running around in this whole metaphysical thing. Well, my head will get cut off or something running into a buzzsaw. So we need all that, but at the same time, it is very limited. And you know, just as science has shown that these senses that we have are very limited because all we ever thought we could there was, was what we saw, felt, smelled, and, you know, tasted, and so forth, and we had come up with machines that showed us so much more than that, and now we know of them because of the machines. Well, there is so much more in the metaphysical. You know, uh, you know and an interesting thing is, is, that, is that just as you can tune your own senses to do more, you know, for example, uh, you know, uh, uh, my, my daughter is, is, is having some issues with, with her back. She's a... Uh, you know, figure skater, and uh, when they when they read the MRIs and the and the uh, CAT scans, they look like just a bunch of blurs to my wife. And the person, you know, the, the physician that's reading it, you know, knows exactly what it is. Or a right. or, or, or a terrific musician will be able to, you know, d- you know, discern exactly what the right you know note is or whatever. And somebody else that just looks at it, or a chef or something like that. And you know, we've all experienced. We can be in a crowded room with a whole bunch of voices we can hear and we can tune into a certain voice and so forth. And we have this ability to sharpen and focus our physical, and we all know that. That's not news to anybody. But what is news is that, to a lot of people, is that we have this latent power of, the, of our ability to tune into some of the aspects of the metaphysical. And, 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 and an awful lot of that, and I know one of your previous shows talked a little bit about that, is through meditation. But you know, there's, there's, there's other aspects to that. But there are, there's, there's a lot more information out on the physical that we can tune into, and you kind of can, your readers, your, your listeners can kind of uh, identify with that. But let me tell you that there's an awful lot more in the realm of the metaphysical that we can tune into. And obviously, that's a huge part of the message in my book. You've uh, you've made several distinctions between, you know, what is what is physical and what is physical metaphysical and what is physical and um how how they're different one thing i've i've studied during my life is how how we perceive the metaphysical world is it's a it's a culmination of all of our regular senses added together 
to make almost another sense that isn't there. Mm-hmm. Do, do you understand what I'm talking about? A lot of people will call it yes. a, a mind's eye or a third eye or whatever, where you yes, where you actually sense things with a with some kind of device that really physically has no has no physical. It, has, it doesn't have a physical counterpart. How how do right. uh, where where is that bridge right. between right between the physical uh, and the metaphysical? Well, David, you know, to that point, okay, and it just give you a very simple example that a lot of listeners would be able to identify and. By the way, this happens to be an example I, I, I reference in my book. Gabby David Sheldrake uh, wrote uh, a book or two about the sense of being stared at. And, and this is a real, real phenomenon. I mean, people who are, who are, somebody is staring at them know they're being stared at. Now, Western physics has absolutely no, no rules, no laws, no explanation how somebody could know that they were being stared at. But it is, being, it is measured all, all the time. And you've all had the eerie feeling that somebody's looking at you. And so it's, it's, it, it, it then shows exactly what you're talking about, is that there is this, we have, you know, you have the feelings of love, you have the feelings of, you know, you have the feelings of nervousness. You can walk into a room after maybe a, a terrible argument has occurred and, and you can almost sense the thickness of, you know, thickness of it, you know, whatever. I mean, these are, these are visceral feelings that actually go from the metaphysical to the physical without us even knowing, you know, how they happen. When I say without us knowing, I'm talking about science does not have an explanation for this. You know, along those lines, they can't explain the, uh, uh, the uh, pin, uh, you know, I'm sorry. I'll shut off right there and then get back to you. I, uh, no, I was just going to say I'm glad that you, you know, talked about the, somebody staring at you. I can... As a matter of fact, I can feel David eyeballing me right now. It's kind of creeping me out. <laughs> From over Knock it here? off, David. Did you hey, give yeah. you the evil eye? <laughs> no, we, we call it stink eye out here. Somebody giving you the stink <laughs> eye. <laughs> hey, Joe, you, you know, we're, we're talking about this stuff, and, 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 and you know, for, for some it could be a lot of information, but I think what, uh, what everyone... Uh, might want to know is why why this book why why use all the knowledge that you've gained and all the things that you've done um, you know based on these hypotheses and and these theories that that you've worked with for so long why why write a book about positive thinking or you know something similar to the law of attraction sure well a good question there and 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 then kind of kind of along with that question some of my readers have asked me also you know do I need to know all this information? Okay, so, so kind of the answer to your first question ties into the answer to the second one. Um, you know, I was fascinated, and, and to be honest with you, I found out a lot more about physics and metaphysics because I knew that there was a disconnect between what, physics was, what the laws of physics were saying and the ability to be able to create the future, which is something that I actually live in my life that way, and, and I know others do. And it, but it bothered me that I could do it, but I couldn't explain how it was being done. So that's kind of where I went through the whole process to kind of understand it. And the interesting thing is um, that if you were a physicist, uh, you'd understand that there's a number of issues that physicists are now facing today that they can't explain. And uh, I, happen to, I happen to categorize them as about uh, 18, and I added uh, 
one more to that, which would make it 19 in my particular set. You know, somebody else may have 15, somebody else may have 20, but there's, there's, there's unknowns in physics. And, uh, and basically, uh, the thing I added was the fact that we couldn't explain, you know, the whole realm of the metaphysical. We couldn't explain paranormal and all that stuff. And, uh, and then basically came up with an answer, uh, you know, a version of physics or a paradigm, if you will, that actually solved all of that. And then once I did that, boy, I could then explain to people how this works. I could then explain to them, if you, this is how you think and this is how you can make something happen. And I found out that that really tremendously empowered the person to actually change events in their life. I mean, tremendously happened. And I, and I showed them real laws of physics and how the real laws of physics, you know, uh, actually work within the, 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 the thoughts that they were having. So I kind of related the two of them. It, it, and, and by the way, some people have asked me, gee, that's wonderful, but, you know, do I have to know all of this? And, and in truth, I had to write all of this because in some cases I'm, I have to, you know, present it to physicists. In other cases, I'm, I'm, I'm doing it to skeptics and so forth, and, uh, and I'm pleased to say that it's, it's been very well received. But, you know, but I, I didn't want to be just arm-waving and saying this just works this way and, you know, trust it. I had to actually get in and explain it. But luckily, now that the first book is out and the second book is out and, even, and then the third book is, is shortly going to come out, I can make them much shorter and then just reference the other books so that people don't have to know all these facts. They just have to know kind of the surface of, of this, and they, but they can meet it. So they don't have to know it, but I, I had to write it, if that makes sense. So, yeah, so sure our scientists, our scientists, I mean, it has to be in some book I wrote. Mr. Joe, our scientists, they have their own way of thinking about about things, and um, you mentioned that that their their formula, so to speak, of reality uh, leaves mm-hmm. loopholes in what is. And so the problem with us is we're looking out there at what is, and um, we realize that there are things that their formula can't account for which makes us go and search for another formula, right? Yes. What is their formula, and how how does your formula differ from what they have? Well, you know, what I've done is I I kind of took where physics, you know, the the last 2,600 years of physics, Mm -hmm. and in almost the same way a science fiction writer perhaps would then take you know, we're, we're, we're like today is, and then like, you know, come up with something like the Jetsons or something, you know, if, you know, if, you, if, you, if cars got faster and faster and, you, could, you know, whatever, now they'd be able to fly or something like that. And I almost then just extrapolated where it would be. Now, that's really, you know, not a scientific approach by itself, but just hold that in the bands. Next thing I did is I took all the problems, put them on a whiteboard, and I said, if I, if I can come up to a point where everything seems to be headed, is there a point where it solves all these problems? And that place, that intersection, is where, is where I, I had that aha moment. And I said, this is how physics works. And the interesting thing about that is it was a complete confluence between physics and metaphysics. It actually just brought the two of them that they are the effectively like the yin-yang symbol, that, that neither one can exist without the other. They are totally complementary. And, um, and that's why I believe that what I have holds water. 
and uh, and I've been lucky to have some you know a lot of peer reviews by some pretty pretty you know not just good physicists and not just uh, you know uh, honored physicists but ones that were really really sticking to the you know sticking to the uh, very very conventional side of things. Uh, but that's kind of where, where physics is going. I mean, if you take if you take the latest in string theory, you take the latest in you know quantum gravity, you take the latest in quantum loop gravity and superstring, and there's different flavors of it. It is heading where I just kind of leaped over it, and I can leap over it because I don't have to have I didn't have to have all the math, I didn't have to have all the experiments. I just had to have you know an answer that would then hold water, and lucky enough, a bunch of uh, dedicated physicists to kind of uh, keep me in the right direction and then finally say, yep, it looks like, looks like you might have something there. A friend and dedicated listener of uh, the KOA named Alder, he's in the chat room, he, he wants you to define reality because you'd, you'd started okay. on it earlier but never got around to it. Sure, sure. What a great question. What is reality? Probably one of the most pondered questions of all time. Well, let me tell you how I define reality, and I've thought about this an awful lot, and I explain this in the book, uh, and probably about you know two to three pages. But let me let me short let me shorten that. Basically, um, you, you have to. I start with the premise, and I make a good I make a case for this, that that vibration is all that is. So that if something vibrates, it is. If it doesn't vibrate, it is not. So there is only vibration. Everything, everything that is vibrates, and in fact, how it vibrates determines what it is. So if two things vibrate the same, they are identical. But for example, no two snowflakes vibrate the same. That's why snowflakes you know, are, are all different. But, if, but vibration is all there is. So that's a whole little, um, you know, and I'm not, I'm not breaking new ground there. I'm, I'm just kind of riding new ground broken. So vibration is if something exists, uh, it vibrates. If something vibrates, it exists. So it's kind of a tautology. The, 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 so that's half of it. So to be real, it must vibrate. The second part of it is that a conscious entity must, must perceive this vibration for it to be real. So if you then take the two together, then reality is the perception of vibration, or perception of something vibrating, perception of something changing versus its background. So it's a a combination of the two of them. And by the way, the latest, latest thinking is almost there in physics, and it's remarkable that 2,600 years ago, a Zen, you know, Zen master posed, if a tree falls in the forest and there's no one there to hear it, does it make a sound? Knowing that the answer is it doesn't make a sound. Now, how, you know, I, fi- I find that to be absolutely mind-boggling that 2,600 years ago a thinker could have come up with that, and 2,600 years later we're beginning to see that answer. But, but that's the definition that I have, David. At the same time, you, you do acknowledge that it doesn't it doesn't require uh, sentience and, and and what we're used to thinking of it as to to receive the knowledge of that sound wave of that tree falling. Yeah, through, absolutely. You know, a bug absolutely. or a, a butterfly, the air molecules, anything, mm-hmm. anything, and and so anything that perceives it gives it reality. 
so that so that to a to an air molecule to an air molecule which to me has consciousness very low consciousness but consciousness to an air molecule that that tree falling sound is real so this been disturbed mm-hmm. but if there was no air molecule there and if there was nothing there there would be no reality so the interesting thing is, is that that's the confluence, by the way, of the metaphysical and physical. If there was no, if there was no physical uh, perception, sound, taste, smell, you know, vib- any of those things perceived, that vibration that occurred and it went nowhere, or it was it was not absorbed anywhere, that would that would not be real. In other words, that reality would cease. Now, the truth of the matter is. It has to. If you vibrate, you have to affect something else. So it's kind of interesting that if there's no one there to hear it, and that really, and that, by the way, is, is misunderstood. It's not a person. It means no entity, no consciousness, no form of anything. But if there was nothing there to, you know, to, to, to respond, it wouldn't make anything, but there always is something. So it's kind of an interesting catch-22, if you will. Hey, Joe. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, I just want—I just want to make sure that that, that uh, uh, I'm following. Ba- basically, everything is vibrating. Uh, everything in the universe is vibrating to to, to make it right. exist. But but perception plays a role in that as well. Now, when we say perception, is it your opinion that it's our perception of our individual perception of the vibration, the, the vibrational patterns in in an object, in a rock, in a car, that that makes it uh, solid and real for us. I, mean, I guess That's what right. I'm trying to get to is there. A lot of people want to want to believe that there are lots of different realities because we all are individuals to a point, mm-hmm. uh, you know. And and my truth may not be your truth or David's truth, but we can share the same kind of truth or reality how how far does this rabbit hole go i mean do do different realities just go on forever well yeah another great question and and by the way when i give these answers i want to be very clear you know to both of you and and to the audience is that you know i'm not i'm not you know the supreme being up here with these answers i'm just in somebody that's researched them for 30 years and you know spent an awful lot of time trying to answer them and, and having them try to make some sense so I will, I will offer it in that in that context. But what I've what you know what I've found with that is this: you're absolutely right. Everybody's reality is different. You know, for example, we, we three are on the show here, and I think we have a you know we've, we've talked before, and I think we certainly have a you know a shared vision. A lot of us want to empower folks and so forth and so on. But you know that's us. That we're in this country and so forth and so on. You know, let me just give you two examples, okay? If you take, like, say, the two most, you know, heinous acts perpetrated in the United States, probably without any doubt at all, would be the attack on Pearl Harbor and the and the attack, you know, the, the planes going into the all, all the all the accidents, but mainly the planes going into the World Trade Center. Now, we look at the perpetrators of those acts as being, you know, horrible cowards with no sense of, you know, value for human life and everything bad, 
Okay? I don't think we'll get too many arguments over that. The people doing it and the people supporting the people saw them as heroes, saw them as defenders of, you know, their, you know, their ideals. And you say to yourself, well, wait a minute, how can this be so, so far? So it's like, you know, as you say, one man's meat is the other man's poison. It is truly, you know, the culture that, that actually, you know, kind of almost homogenizes all of us to kind of think in a, in a kind of a, uh, in a, in a certain way that it, that it is consistent so that we don't have as much individuality, which is kind of an interesting thing. So we do see things differently, but we actually are almost monitored to see them somewhat the same way. And the term is acculturation, and actually acculturation is actually a vibration that kind of almost tunes us, you know, to, to see things more or less the same way, but we still see them individualistically. I mean, I, you know, I get into this an awful lot in the book. But, uh, right. yeah, so you can say how far down the rabbit hole um, it could be worse if there wasn't, you know, it wasn't large cultures trying to um, homogenize us, if you will. Right. Um, and I agree. Um, you know, I I do think think uh, one man's truth is another man's lie. And, I mean, it's obvious to anybody that ever opened their eyes and had a disagreement with somebody because both people thought they were they were 100% right. right. But right. in your opinion, Joe, does, does all this, does, do all these things, do all these realities, do all these vibrations, do they start somewhere? Is there a source? Is, you know... Where is this stuff coming from? Yeah, well, you know what? It, it's increasing all the time, and it, and, it, and it actually is increasing because consciousness is increasing. And it's also getting to higher levels because consciousness is getting to higher levels. Um, and, uh, you know, and that's one of the reasons that's kind of good-bad. You know, it's kind of a two-edged sword. That's one of the reasons that life is so complex now. You know, because there are... There is so many. There is so much more information, and there is so much more emotion. There is so much more at stake. It's just you know the problems are greater, the solutions become more complex, you know, and it, and it, it does go on and on. I've thought about. That's not my field of, of expertise, but I've thought about you know where this is going, and how the hell we're going to you know solve this problem, and that's a tough one. Right. But I, I will. I will say this. Uh, and, and, you know, vibration started in, in, you know, I believe started with the Big Bang, okay? And one of the things that cosmologists know is that at the time of the Big Bang, all the energy and all the mass in the universe was contained in a, in a space that was basically dimensionless. Now, that's such a ridiculous contradiction. How could everything be in nothing? But the Zen, the Zen masses have been saying that forever. But if you think about this, think, imagine that if you imagine every imaginary negative number and every imaginary positive number, and you brought them into a melting pot, they'd come to zero. Well, science is now understanding that every single force in nature all brought to, together would cancel each other right down to zero, right down to zero. Uh, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, the, well, you can imagine the magnetic poles, how they have this push-pull and also protons and electrons and so forth. You go through the whole thing. So there is this, this is balance. It's expanding, but as one expands, the other expands. 
So there's always a complementary expansion. You know, uh, it's it's never you know one positive thing without a negative thing. And I don't mean that in the you know positive being a good and negative being bad, although that could be. I just mean you know the the opposite. A spin no, left causes spin would, right. Blah blah blah. Would you say that the value difference between you you were talking about how the Big Bang um, at, at one point in time everything was in that melting pot and then it, it shot out basically and um, turned itself into positives and negatives. Would you say that the, the, the value difference between those positive and neg negative values today are what enable space to oscillate that, that vibration you're talking about? <sighs> does, does, does that tie in? I mean, because well, it seems uh, to me if it was zero, it would be totally inert. Yeah. Um, well, I say... I, what I believe, David, is that is that is that the, the Zen saying in everything there is nothing and in nothing there is everything. That zero, that nothing and infinity are identical. There is no difference whatsoever between all and nothing. Let me give you an example. You know, let, let's take let's take this show. Okay, this show runs until here I am in the East Coast. It's going to run until midnight. Okay, mm -hmm. you know, theoretically. Now, when it is when it is 11:59, you know there's still some part of today. 11:59, 59 there's still some part of today. You know, but there's going to be a point when when it becomes all of today, all of today, it is going to be none of today. You know, in other words, it's just like when you have all of the circle. It is, you know. All you've gone all around the circle. Now you're at the beginning and you're at the end at the same time. And when you there's going to be a point where you're at the beginning and end of this day. And this gets into physics. It's called the the, the Planck time and the Planck length. And uh, it is a it is it is a real real spot. It is a real dimension. That that it's a confluence. That is the confluence, by the way, of the metaphysical and physical, which we're beginning to realize. So um, basically, you know, there is. The difference between all and nothing comes down to that little point. They are the same. So you can just generate positives and negatives going off in two different directions, you know, just spewing off because they're actually feeding off each other. I don't know if I answered your question or if you agree, but, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's what I've come up with. Oh, what I was seeing in my mind is a little bit different. I just don't know how to communicate it. Well, you know, I probably didn't answer it right, so... Come right back at me, and you know, and you know, I think we're going to do this again. So, you know, some of the questions and some of the questions in the audience, we can kind of you know get to. That we're throwing out a lot of a lot of information. I don't want to I don't want to start you know wading too deep on some of these, but these are certainly good questions and fun stuff. Right. You know, and, and there's a reward here. The reward is is that if you understand how this stuff works, you will be able to you know, truly influence uh, events in your life. All right. So let's uh, let's take a quick break, everyone. Sure. Um, uh, you listen to Nice Awakening uh, on Blog Talk Radio. We're here tonight with uh, Joseph E. Donlin, the author of the series of books uh, called Ordaining Reality. Uh, when we come back, we're going to get a little deeper into the books. We're... Uh, uh, I'd like to focus on the books, um, and uh, so those of you who uh, 
wish to follow along, um, I want to throw out a couple of uh, uh, websites for you to check out during the break, um, and, and feel free to, to follow along with us. Ordainingreality.com uh, is the main uh, website for the books. Um, please check it out, um, and, and, and it'll make it a little easier for you to follow along uh, with those of, you, those of you who are listening out there live. Um, also, uh, there's a link on ordainingreality.com that, that uh, if you look at the left navigation menu, um, there's a button for featured excerpts um, of the book. And I've been reading through these uh, last several days, and I can tell you, pretty, pretty good stuff. So, um, again, when we come back, we're going to uh, pick up where we left off with uh, Joseph. So, uh, don't go away. Good. And we're back. Thank you for uh, letting us take a quick break. Oh uh, yeah, you're listening to the Knights of Awakening radio program. We have an internet site, KnightsOfAwakening.com. Um, you can you can call in and talk to us live right now, six four six seven one six four six zero nine. If you go to Blog Talk Radio, 
which uh, if you if you can listen to this, you you have a link to to go there. You can hit the push the chat button if you have a headset, and you can you can talk to Mr. Joe Joe Donlin, author of Ordaining Realities, or ask uh, Justin or myself questions. Uh, in the second hour, we're wanting to focus more on the book itself. Get get really into it because we have uh, excerpts that we're wanting to talk about. But before we do that, we have we have some unsettled business in the chat room. Um, people are kind of confused, uh, wondering what you mean on particular issues. Um, the whole talk about the the Big Bang and the universe being, you know, um, spawned from nothing. What what they're what they're asking is is the universe <clears throat> increasing in matter an equal amount of matter? Matter. I mean, is it? Is is more being produced? Is it uh, both sides? Is more being added to both sides? And is some of this assume, assuming that everything is built on a circle? Um, how how can we uh, get around to measuring the start and stopping points of all this? Sure. Well, you know the the universe is clearly expanding. Uh, we know that, and uh, you know the, the circle is one way to look at it. A probably more apt way, uh, according to cosmologists, is to look at it almost like a soap bubble that's kind of you know blowing up, and it's almost like you know there is no there is no there is no boundary, if you will, to the universe. Is only the universe is effectively effectively infinite because. Soon as you, as soon as consciousness gets to a point where it sees more, it expands more. At least that's that, that's you know one of the theories. Um, and as to how it's expanding, uh, that's actually one of the things that that the cosmologists don't understand. And in fact, not only do they not understand it, they don't understand how it seems to be expanding at greater than the speed of light at its most further points which is defying all kinds of laws. Um, and, and again, my, my paradigm kind of, kind of offers an explanation for that. But, um, you know, I, I don't want to get too, too much into deep cosmology because that's, gosh, to be honest with you, that's its own, you know, that could be a show, you know, in and of itself, and, and, uh, and I don't know that everyone would really gain an awful lot from that. But the bottom line is that, that everyone who's in the field pretty much agrees that the universe is expanding and it is, it is expanding at a accelerating pace. Uh, they, there's, a, there's a tremendous confusion as to what's causing it or disagreement as to what's causing that expansion, but there's no disagreement Joe, Joe, that it's expanding. Joe, Sorry. your mileage may vary and, and everyone out there too, and this is just my, my humble viewpoint of it, but uh, I mean, to me, I mean, it, this might seem like a dumb guy's way to look at it, but isn't I mean, isn't it really the more you look at, the more you find? I mean, you know, the the further into space we realize it's there, the more we find that's in front of it, and, and yes. so on and so forth. I mean, is it just expanding because we think it's expanding? I mean, it's just because we're only a fraction of the way through it, and it goes on forever anyway. I mean, I, you know, I, I, again, I could be wrong. It's just kind of my dumb well, way of looking at it. You know, what? you know what? You could be right. You could be right. Because, you know, first of all, you know, a scientist would poo-poo that. I mean, you know, some scientists would. 
And I look at it and say, well, why isn't that not true? Because, you know, if you, if you go back, and again, I'm a student of science, and you go back to, say, Galileo, okay, when he was, you know, with the, with the telescopes that they had, the distance that they could see, that was, that was, the, that was the known universe, you know? And, and so the very question you asked, Justin, was that the known universe? Well, absurd, it was not. There's no way the right. universe went from that size to this enormous size in that period of time. What right. actually happened is that we got better at looking further. Right. Okay. And that's kind of where I was going with that. You know, I mean, I, I, yeah, uh, you know so. it's not like we're dealing with the ocean. I mean, you know, there are parts of the ocean that I can dive into and certainly reach the bottom uh, exactly. eventually. And it stops. But, you know, we're talking about space. We're talking about, you know, uh, I'm going to walk outside right now and look at a star. I certainly probably will never be alive to see somebody touch it or go to where it right. used to be. Um, and, and, and if they got to that point, uh, it's probably going to, they're just going to say, crap, now there's a whole bunch more. Right. You right. Know? Right. Right. And, you know, it's, it is interesting. It's interesting to me because I only use that as a portion. I mean, that, that probably is about one half of 1% of what's, you know, what's in the book, but it, I still have to talk about that because that's, that's a piece of science. But the interesting thing is, is that I look at, you know, its history and I say that each, you know, each level we're at, we're now saying 13.8 billion years old is the age of the universe. You know, that number has only increased. And for someone to say, that's the number, you know, and I have to kind of laugh. Now, I don't have the knowledge. I don't have the expertise to say it's really 14.7, okay? But I can tell you right now, I've got the historical perspective to say, it's probably going to be a bigger number than 13, 8, 5, 10, 20 years from now. And it doesn't take an awful lot of prognostication to come up with that. All you've got to look at is the last 25 claims that that's how you know, big it is and that's, how, and that's how old it is, you know, much to your point. So, and, and one of the things I said earlier is that one of the things that science is discovering is unknowns. We're discovering unknowns faster than we're solving them. You know, I guess we're getting smarter, sure. but we're getting smarter by learning more about what we don't know. That's true. There could be a whole lot. And then secondly, you know, and secondly, the answer to an awful lot of those questions is found in an awful lot of the literature of the, of the Eastern pundits, you know, for the last um, two, three thousand years. Which I, which I frankly find rather amazing because they had to intuit it. And the only way they could have intuited it, in my mind, is to be able to tune their consciousness to that of like this kind of universal consciousness so that that information that they were, that they were privy to was kind of out there in the cosmos. Which means it was kind of either they could tune to something that is thousands of years in the future that they tuned into or has been known universally and they can tune into it. I could see no other answer. No, I mean, they came up with stuff. Go ahead. Go ahead. Wouldn't those, wouldn't those questions, all these questions that were coming up uh, that science is, is hitting on, wouldn't that pretty much show us right there that 
the science is incomplete. Uh, if, if there's something lacking, then that lacking that that part that's missing has the potential to change a lot of what we already assume, right? And that that's one of the that's one of the <clears throat> major things of your book is that uh, mm-hmm. the science is lacking; it's incomplete. And uh, I'm sure you have a, a lot of information in there talking about how uh, you know the the Western um, uh, the physics and all that stuff, how, how they have uh, an idea of, of reality, it, it, and, and you give your own theory of reality, which explains more of, of what's going on than what, than what they can, such as being able to feel somebody looking at you or whatnot. Right, um, exactly. <clears throat> one, of the, one, of your second, one of your second big things in the book is the, the hypothesis, hypothesis that the, the future is uh, not preordained or totally random. How how can if if it's not preordained by by what system could it exist when where where it wouldn't be have some kind of element of, of randomness to it? I mean, could you explain that a little bit more? Sure, sure. Yeah, I uh, first of all, right. If you you know if you go back into you know some older theories of physics going back to you know Newton's Newton's laws and so forth um, that field of uh, that, that paradigm of physics described a clockwork universe, meaning that if you knew everything, you could now predict the next thing that was going to happen. And that thought prevailed for a long time. In fact, that thought prevailed until about 1926, when quantum mechanics came on the scene. And it was discovered then, and that's what we actually brought about quantum mechanics, that that notion was not true that there wasn't certainty there was there was uncertainty there wasn't a definite requirement for things it was only a probability and there was a few other differences that I talk about in the book but let's just stick with that that particular topic and one of the important parts to come up with that understanding is that the act of observing something altered the outcome of the thing you were observing. And let me give you a crude example. Let's say that, let's say that um, David, you and I and Justin were uh, anthropologists, okay, and, and we traveled to this remote part of, um, you know, uh, the, Aborig- the Aboriginal Australia. And, and we were going to write a book about you know, this Aborigine tribe that, you know, that hadn't seen any Westerners. Okay, and we, we drive up there in our Land Rover and we get our cameras out. And we, we, you know, that, you know, and we think it's reality TV, but that's how much have we changed, you know, you know, changed the outcome of that particular thing. We can't look at them without, them, without changing it, you know what I'm saying? I mean, that's a very crude example. But when you actually get down to the real physics of things, we now see that we can't actually look at anything. We can't measure anything without actually affecting it. And, and incidentally, that gets to kind of a philosophical question that, um, that Justin brought up, that maybe we're, we're creating more of the universe by seeing more of it, you know. But we actually certainly are affecting the outcome of, of, of stuff. So there's, there is probability, and then we now understand that it's not just probability, but 
the mood of the people looking at the experiment is actually affecting the outcome of the experiment. Mm -hmm. And that, by the way, uh, that, that's a huge piece in my book, but that's not my theory. That's now, that's now you know, current Western physics uh, accepted theory. Yeah, it's it's harder it's harder to understand that that concept when you, when you're thinking of it in terms of self and inanimate object. But right when when you start dealing with the 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 world of interaction between between people or two willful beings, um, you you start to see it more and more often. Uh, like Absolutely. Uh, like whenever you were a teenager and you were talking to that girl, you know. Um, if you had if you had insecurity if you had fear, they can they would pick up on that. Absolutely. So, so your preconceived notions going into that situation definitely had some impact on the outcome of it. So yeah, absolutely. You, you started off it, it, on you know. so many levels. Mm -hmm. Or um, yeah. did somebody say something? Um, and and there's other there's other aspects you know like uh, you're walking down the street and there's a there's a dog in the yard next to you. If you have fear, that dog's gonna smell it. We say the dog's gonna smell it. Does fear have an actual smell? I don't know. Mm -hmm. There could be yeah. something that's produced in the sweat, whatever. Something subtle. Yep. But the dog knows it, you know. And if you're not afraid, you know. And and we've all we've all experienced these these kind these kinds of. Uh, scenarios and we can acknowledge that we can acknowledge that what we already are our focus that we have determined what is is determining what we will find when we look out but yep. um when you start dealing with science and you say when you say when i look at when i look at an apple sitting on a table my preconceived thoughts of that whole situation doesn't change any of it all but but actually it does it colors it you know or yes. somebody, someone else that didn't didn't have your past experiences, didn't wasn't based their their opinion on the same memories or the same kinds of you know things that you are. Whenever they look at that same exact thing, they're going to see something totally different. You know. Yep. Yep. And uh, you know, depending on that perception is how they react to it. You know. Yes. So. Very much so. You know, you mentioned uh, a good analogy about the dog. You know, making sensing fear, and that's that's so true. Well, let me give you let me give you another one. Uh, and that terrible, terrible uh, tsunami of I think it was 2004, 2005, whenever it was, uh, at 2006. You know where where so many people lost their lives. Um, animals knew that was coming and, and ran for higher ground. And the owners that were astute enough to recognize the animals running for higher ground long before, long before there was an issue. Uh, the ones that ran up there with them, their lives were saved. You know, they, they, they kind of sense that. Now, what was it that the, I mean, what was it that the animals knew before we had even detection equipment telling us that there was a tsunami coming? Sure. You know, by itself, a very interesting question. Mm -hmm. But the, the thing is, is that not a contested issue. They knew. I mean, I don't even know if there was any dogs that died. I mean, they, they, they all made it to higher ground. I mean, just as an example, they, 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 they high-tailed it. Uh -huh. Long before humans even knew there was an issue, and that's because we've actually kind of, uh, even though we have that ability to tune in, we've actually shut that off, and that's a case where a higher intellect has actually gotten in the way of some things. 
Uh, we could we could also using using this same principle. We could also draw a, a line of connection between, oh, let's say the stock market crash of 1920s and the doomsday theory of 2012, couldn't we? Mm -hmm. Yes. Which which tells us, you know, that if if we, if we are if we, if we are scared, if we have fear that uh, something really, really bad is going to happen, and we all project that fear on one particular day, by by doing so, the actions that we take as a as a response to that perception that we have made, uh, that that idea that we're entertaining, we very well and could invite that very thing. You know what I'm saying? Which, which is Not only invite it, we can actually bring it about. Yeah, well, I was trying to say that softly, but yeah. yes. Yeah, we could, that's we a could scary notion, but it's a very true statement. Hmm. Well, especially since that fear is guiding most of your choices and decisions. Yes. Uh, you know, uh, let's look at uh, how many of us felt silly uh, after, uh, what was the, gosh, I can't remember what. Y2K. Y2K. <laughs> Boy, didn't we look stupid after that. You know, the whole world kind of looked, looked stupid. Um, in your book, Joe, uh, you, the majority uh, or, or a good section of your book focuses on four principles. Um, and and as I kind of read through these, I mean, they they, they really kind of resonated with me, and I really thought they were they were important. Can you can you kind of take us through the the four principles and and how they apply to um, you know kind of ordaining your reality? Sure, sure, sure. Um, Definitely. Uh, let, me, let me just kind of uh, reference those. Uh, yeah, I mean, well, basically, um, I'm actually just going to kind of pull those up so that I can kind of cite them in the, in the right order here. The, the first, essentially, a bunch of hypotheses that, that I kind of put, pulled together here from, from the research I've done. Um, basically, I contend that there are two codependent realms, the physical and the non-physical. And basically, especially in the first book, I described how the physical realm deals with the tangible and the material and the concrete you know, aspects of nature. And in contrast, that non-physical reality deals with, obviously, the, in, the intangible, but what we would call the spiritual, the abstract. And, and of course, in the book, I talked to them effectively as, as metaphysical. So, so the first hypothesis is that, that there are two, and they're codependent. The second is that that the I'm, I'm I'm trying to you know explain to folks that all the all the information in the world is not contained in the laws of Western physics, because the laws of Western physics deal exclusively with the physical plane of existence. They can't even begin to understand notions of love, and they can't begin to understand you know if, for example, they couldn't explain the the sense of being stared at. So, and, and to them, they just pretty much deal with, with the physical, and if they don't, if they, don't if they can't measure it, they say it's not, it doesn't exist. And of course, I take, I take strong exception. The third, the third hypothesis uh, is that in contrast to, to the Western physics, I propose that the Eastern philosophy uh, embraces the, the metaphysical realm and basically, uh, you know, defines it. So that, and I'll, I'll explain explain a little bit more about how that actually works because you know those are words, and what do those words mean? I'll get into that in, in a minute. 
But uh, and then the fourth hypothesis basically uh, explains explains then that okay, why do we why do we as humans have totally two different views of nature? This physical view of nature by the Western physicists, and then this Eastern view of metaphysics by the Eastern pundits. Why the heck do we have these? I mean, you know, why did we come up with two different ways of seeing the universe? Well, this is an original thesis uh, that I've developed, and that is that's the bifurcation of the of the brain system. Our left brain is completely oriented towards uh, Western physics, and the right brain is completely oriented towards Eastern metaphysics. And interestingly enough, I kind of discovered that shortly after graduate school, because I, I, my degree is in computer science, uh, you know, masters, and, 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 uh, but I did a lot of postgraduate work in, in uh, artificial intelligence, and I could see how easy it was to mimic things that our left brain was doing. Uh, we, uh, we could mimic certain functions and they ended up being left brain functions and we had no ability. Uh, no matter what, I don't care how fast the computer was. The computer couldn't fall in love. The computer couldn't sense fear. The computer couldn't you know, hold a grudge. You, you know, it just couldn't figure out how to do that stuff. And that's what kind of led me, led me down these roads. It's a long-winded answer, but that's, that's where some of these uh, hypotheses came from. David? Yes, sir. Um, the, your book's fourth assertion is that uh, once you understand some of the some of the laws of the the metaphysical world and and you, you learn how to interact with it, it'll definitely change your life. Um, yeah, it, it gives you the tools. It gives you the gives you the keys to the vault, honestly. And, and that's basically the purpose of the book, is it not? To 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 give people the the combination to this life they've been handed when they're yes. born. Very very much so. I mean, well, and, and here's the thing too is you know, and I want to point out, you know, you we both made some comments earlier about you know some other books that are out there, and, and, and I want to clarify that, you know, this, this books on focusing, this books on visualization. There's books on positive thinking, you know, and books like even The Secret talks about thinking positive thoughts, good things will happen, law of attraction, whatever. And, I, and I'm not saying any of them are wrong. What I'm definitely saying, though, is that, is that they don't tell you why it is that. And I also think that knowing why it is that way is very, very important for the success of that. You know, just as if you drop, if you put, you know, your outstretched arm with a object and you drop it, you'd know it's going to fall to the ground because there's laws of physics that are going to make that thing fall to the ground. Well, there's laws of physics that are actually going to make a future action happen if you can kind of focus on it in a certain way. And that's, that's, that's really the key to the vault that I kind of, uh, you know, present, explain, and then describe you know the, the method for actually doing that. So um, yeah, that's that's really that's the difference. If you know how it works, you know. For example, um, and again, I'm not trying to slam any books here at all. But if you take some of the wording in some books, let's just take the law of attraction. That talks about 
likes attracting each other. Well, you know, if you were a physicist, you'd have a terrific problem with that because likes don't attract, opposites attract. I mean, if you took two magnets, you know, and you put the, you put the, you put the, the, the two ends of, of magnets together, they would repel each other. So it's, it, you need to have the negative and the positive. So if you say, well, the negative and the positive, how does that work? Well, it's called reciprocity. And so basically, everything, you have to, you have to come up with a scenario that you're helping something that's helping you. And that's how it works. And that actually, hopefully, is going to begin to change things, you know, things in the world as well, as well as making uh, good things happen to you. And I've, that's what I've been teaching, and it works very well, very effectively. It draws people with, with uh, complementary needs to each other. We'll, hey, uh, Joe we'll, and Dave? Yeah, go ahead. Joe and Dave, we have a caller. Let's bring our caller on and, and uh, get their question out there. What's your name, caller? Uh, hold on, Dave. I'm I'm still trying to fight with Mom. Oh talk man! Here. <laughs> Don't mess with me. Good evening, caller. How are you? Hello. Hello there. Hello there. Hello. This is Empress Palpatine. Hello there. Good afternoon. Hey, hey, I think you would really like. You know, I haven't gotten to this point uh, of the book yet, my dear. But I, but I think uh, uh, Joe doesn't know this, but we have some. Uh, we have some Einstein fans out there somewhere. And, oh, good. Uh, Einstein's a big part of your book, too, isn't it, Joe? Very big part of my book. He's my hero. I actually go against him, but he's my hero. <laughs> <laughs> What's your question, dear? Well, my question is about, I want to know what your guest thinks about the idea of multiverse. I've read theories, ideas, that there are not just our universe, but possibly many, many more, and that every possibility has a universe somewhere, so that every decision you make, you may have made a completely different decision in another universe, and it's, it's an idea that's been floating around for a number of years. Yes. I just wondered if you'd heard that one. Oh, yes. Well, no, I never heard about it. I actually write about that in actually my first two books, or the ones that are out right now. Uh, I don't bother getting into that in the, in the third one, because it's, you know, kind of a uh, you know, made much simpler, and I just reference other stuff. No, uh, in fact, um, uh, I've read quite a bit about that because that's a theory. Um, I do not believe that, and I, I get into the reasons for that specifically in the book. Uh, and, and, and let me tell you why, you know, really simply why I don't believe it. Um, the concept of multiverse, by the way, Paul uh, uh, Wheeler is one of the folks that have gotten heavily into that, uh, is... Is, is solving a problem that uh, there's an awful lot of problems that physicists are having, and that actually is an answer. But there's a concept in, in physics and probably in other sciences as well called Occam's razor. It's just one of these concepts. And Occam's razor is one of these things that say, if you've got two solutions that both solve a problem, the one with the least amount of permutations to it is the one that probably is right. Well, if you take a multi-universe, uh, you know, uh, theory, what ends up happening is that it gets itself so twisted into um, incongruities and it has so many complications to it that, yes, 
it does solve a problem, and yes, it is a possibility, but it's highly unlikely because it has so many moving parts, if you will, to its answer. So, uh, you know, and, and again, I'm not the world's, you know, uh, you know, authority on that, but I can tell you I've read an awful lot about, you know, about, about uh, multiple universes. I read an awful lot about every possible slant in new physics that are coming up that kind of debates the current paradigm. And I yeah. use kind of, sorry. Yeah, I read, I just read a lot of things. It's like I'm curious about, like, dimensions like I've read in the string theory yeah. have as much as yeah. 11 yeah. dimensions and possibly... Well, yes, yeah, some have 11, some have 10, yep. And that, that we don't can't see all these dimensions and then even these things they call brains, B-R-A-N-E-S, that there's yeah. like, kind yeah. of like some kind of parallel place. Yeah. Other realities and so... Yeah. Um, well, I'll you tell know, you then... You know, you would be a candidate, just so you know, okay, you'd be a candidate for the actual first book because I talk a great deal about string theory. I talk about all the dimensions. And by the way, I break it down. I break it down. This is in about 25, 30 pages for, for non-physicists or for physicists who haven't been exposed to brain theory. And I mean, it's very, very, very much in layman's form. And it talks about that. It talks about why they evolved. See, a lot of people don't even know well, why are we coming up with these ideas? Well, we're coming up with these ideas because experiments are showing us that our current paradigm can't solve these things. So they're coming up with, with, uh, very, you know, with variations. And one of yeah, the things about... Yeah, supposedly I think string theory is supposed to help solve the unification of all four forces. Um, gravity, electromagnetism, what is it? Oh, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, that's actually... You, you're partly right there. Well, the, 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 there's, there's, there's three theories going on, okay? One theory is gut, which is the grand unified theory. That's what's actually trying to unify all the forces of nature. Then there's the, te- then there's the uh, theory of everything that, you know, that, uh, that basically is trying to uh, combine Newtonian physics, Newtonian Maxwellian physics, uh, Einstein's uh, special relativity, Einstein's general relativity, in the three different flavors of quantum mechanics, and some new other things into one thing. That's the toe theory of everything. And then the last thing is, is that string, what string theory is trying to do, and there's a lot of different variations of string theory. Uh, and by the way, string theory, a lot of people think of string theory. Well, there's, there's, there's seven or eight competing variations of string theory. So I have a bat. It's like an embarrassment of riches that, you know, that you have solving a problem. But what that's trying to solve is, uh, is basically gravity because none of the other sources can solve gravity. And one of the things that makes it attractive is that Einstein came up with the concept of a graviton, and there happens to be a variation of a string in theory that matches the vibration, if you would, fingerprint or footprint, uh, fingerprint would be probably better, of the, of the, of the, of the, of the infamous and elusive graviton. So that, that's, that's part of the allure there. Also... Sorry. That CERN lab is supposed to be looking for graviton. Do you think they'll find it? No, I, I predict very clearly that they will not. They will not find uh, the Higgs boson. Um, I, I, that's one of the predictions I make in the book, because I actually don't understand how gravity works. I came up with a different variation. You know, I, and believe me, uh, I, I when I said Einstein is my hero, he's my hero. Um, 
I am probably one of the very few people literally in the world that reads uh, that read the theory of relativity every year. It, it, it's, it's something that I need to read every year, and I can read it, gosh, and I mean, I'm not bragging, I can read it in maybe in 45 minutes, because I've read it now, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of times, but I need to reread it to keep it in my head, because it's just, it's contrary. And an awful lot of physicists wouldn't, you know, couldn't even really describe it unless they went back and read it again. I mean, they maybe had it 15, 20 years ago. But it's so weird. <laughs> it is strange. It is, it's, it's, it's counterintuitive. But each time I read it, I get another variation of how he was thinking, and I can see some different ways to look at things, and it, and it kind of helps me shape, shape my, shape my uh, understanding. Well, you have some yeah. good questions. You would be a candidate for the big book. Yeah, she knows, she knows a lot about that kind of stuff. She's all in. If I'm not I'm mistaken... If I'm I not mistaken, I grew up on a lot of Star Trek when I was a kid. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're into well, quantum quantum mechanics and quantum physics and yeah. all that stuff, yes. <laughs> yeah, I like to read all that kind of thing, and I my favorite, I like the Brian Green Elegant Universe. Yeah, that's a, oh. yeah, that's good. Brian Green, right? Yeah, Brian yeah. Green, the Nova yeah. series. Yeah, he's, re- he's he's referenced he's referenced in my uh, first and on my first and second book. Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah, in fact, uh, God, I, I probably have about ten pages of bibliography of good stuff. Well, it's I mean, literally about ten pages. Now you got my curiosity. <laughs> yeah, you uh, you know, if you go on the the website, you'd be able to read a little bit more about it. But um, but I can tell you right now, um, you know, when I wrote the first book, I had to write it. Because you know, I mean, that's I, I had to put the ground rules down, and uh, and and I mean, and I'm I can, it's remarkably how, how I mean, it's remarkable that it's selling well because it's a little complex. And even though I think it's simple uh, compared to certainly other things, but it's it's about like uh, you know something at the, at the at the Stephen Hawking's level. He explains things pretty 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 simply, and maybe even a little simpler than that. But uh, but I really had to write it so that I could write the simpler ones that could just reference that. But an awful lot of folks want to know, you know, they want to know the details. They want to know, you know, what's behind the, behind the curtain. And you certainly would be one of them. Some of my readers, by the way, you know, when the other book came out, were offended. They wanted to come up with T-shirts saying, you know, we survived the original copy or whatever, the, you know, different funny T-shirts. That's in some of my blogs. <laughs> but anyway. Thanks for the call. <laughs> You're welcome. Great Bye-bye. questions. Always, always a pleasure. Bye-bye. Good caller and good so, questions. Yeah, very good questions. By, um, by the way, um, David, I think you were talking, or maybe it was you, Justin, or maybe both of you, were talking about when, 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 when people, you know, almost like globally begin to have a fear, how it actually becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, uh-huh. you know, how you, and it's a scary thing. Well, you know, this is very, very specifically a reality, okay? Uh, you know, for example, I don't know if you're familiar or some of your readers are familiar with um, these things called regs, okay, uh, REGs, okay? And they, they, what they are, they're random number generators. And what they are is these machines that, that, that you know, I don't quite understand how they work. I, I, do, I do know what they do. I don't uh, ultimately what they do. But they, they electronically flip like about... 200 coins a second, 
in, a, in, a, in an attempt to measure like global consciousness. And, uh, and this, they, they came up with this idea about the year, two, you know, around 2000. So since 2000, there's been several of these regs, you know, running all over the world under the aegis of this, uh, of this, of this global consciousness project. It's called uh, G GCP. And, and these reg devices are designed to test whether human consciousness collectively extends around the globe. And, and, and if so, does it, you know, does it uh, possess the power to influence the occurrence of random events? And I'm telling you, hold on to your seats because it's amazing. Physicists at, at, at the GCP claim that whenever some, any important event occurs, let's say take the 9-11 you know, uh, terrorist attack or the, or the 2005 Indian Ocean tsunami, the regs display patterns that just got, go crazy, absolutely go crazy. And there are millions and millions of, you know, uh, to one that they can't be coincidence. So and and these and 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 they, and they and they occur before the major events. In other words, it isn't like the planes hit and you know they picked them up, they picked up you know whatever. They 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 are like hours before. Okay, that they're actually picking up this stuff. So they actually can predict the onset of significant events. Um, there was a, an inexplicable spike of non-random activity four hours before the 9/11 attack. And, uh, and then the Indian Ocean was 24 hours in advance of the tragedy, with no sign at all of any kind of vibration or earthquake. Now, unfortunately, they, they don't know what it means. They just know something bad is going to happen. But they absolutely, it's like a spike. They can see the spikes. So, you said earlier about, you know, when you said earlier about how you affect those things, you know, that's, people can key in on these things, too. I don't think it takes a machine. No, absolutely. I know, in fact, I know, I'm in fact not, the, machine, the machine is picking up what we're thinking. Right. I'm not. Uh, I'm not skilled by any means as, as far as uh, being a psychic or, or you know, picking up on, uh, you know, subtleties from across the globe or whatever. But I do yeah. know that on, on days that really bad things happen, like 9/11, <clears throat> I wake up and I'm confused. I just cannot get my stuff together. Wow. Um, and I and I don't know, See, what, I don't know what causes it. Now you are in tune, and, and an awful lot of people. I mean, some people had a boding sense of, you know, foreboding sense, and they were interviews with those people. Oh, most people didn't, mm -hmm. and that and that gets to the whole thing, you know, just like, uh, you know, being able to tune in your senses. Well, you're tuning in, you know, your metaphysical senses are obviously a little heightened, you know, and and that I mean that's that's a gift. Uh, mm -hmm. But you know, people. Uh, you know, but everyone has that ability to to, to get that, and, and and we actually, you know, recommend it through through, through meditation, kind of be able to focus inwardly to be able to pick up those vibrations. But you're absolutely right. I mean, all those machines are doing is picking up from people. They're not they're not picking up from anything but people. But I mean, isn't it amazing though if you think about it, that that you know, four hours before. And it wasn't there wasn't enough terrorists that could have raised these things. So four hours before, that could have been people like you getting up with this foreboding sense that we're having this spike. I mean, it's it's it is really remarkable, but it's absolutely scientific. This is not like you know hocus pocusy. This is a machine that they that they're showing. You know, and when they 
when you see these gigantic spikes, you know, something is happening. All right. Hey, Joe. Something, you know, totally happens. Yep. So, so along those, uh, along that same line of thought, no pun intended, uh, in your book, you uh, uh, you talk about your fourth principle as being thought creates all. Uh, what does that, by your definition or by your book's definition, what does that mean exactly, that, 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 that our sure, thoughts create sure. all things? Yeah, uh, yeah, well, basically, uh, you know, I mean, literally, I mean that. Uh, what, I, what, what, what actually I explain is that everything that is, you know, as I mentioned, is vibration and that the confluence of the physical and metaphysical actually come down to a blurry existence that, that science now recognizes. And some folks like maybe the last listener will, will know that's actually at the Planck scale. And, and basically, what actually creates reality is thought. So that, you know, basically, at that particular point in time, nothing exists without thought, and nothing exists without instructions that are actually... Given, given by thought. Uh, let me give you an example. Uh, a computer, okay? A computer has all the capability in the world, but it won't do anything without a program to tell it what to do. And that program, you can, you can, you can uh, liken that to, it's the thought. Uh, if, you, if you look at, uh, you know, different parts of the, of the human body that have all these particular capabilities to be able to synthesize proteins and so forth, they have that ability but without the DNA instructions, they wouldn't be able to do that. So it's, it's, it's you know, that's a, that's a form of thought. In that case, it's a kind of an autonomic form of, th- of thought as opposed to a, uh, you know, a, a random, uh, a random and, and structured form. But, uh, but that's, you know, I mean, it's, you know, there's, uh, there's, a, there's a condensation in my, in my explanation of about four or five pages to, uh, you know, two or three paragraphs. But that's probably as, as succinctly as I could I could describe that uh, that that notion. I, right. I, I hope I made some sense. Sure. We, we are getting down to the last 15 minutes of the show. Uh, I'd like to, to call, I'd like to remind all the listeners that uh, if you would like to ask Mr. Donlin a question, uh, to call in at 646-716-4609. Or you can hit the push to talk button at Blog Talk Radio. And uh, we're discussing his book, Ordaining Realities. And it has it has a lot to do with about reality itself and how how Western uh, how Western theories of what 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 makes reality uh, is incomplete, and also his own theories of the. Uh, the the complete unified uh, pretty much theory of of how to incorporate everything that we understand as a reality that that Western science is just now catching up with with some of the more advanced theories such as string theory and and that kind of stuff. Um, just just the last few minutes here, I'd like to I'd like to ask you myself uh, one of the one of the more topics that that I'm interested in that that is covered in your book. Uh, you mentioned. Um, <clears throat> I believe at some point in time I read uh, Watchers of the Universe, their role. Could, could you explain? I'm sorry, what was that, David? Watchers of the, the Universe. The Observer's role. The Observer's role. Yes. Could, could, you, could you explain that? Sure, sure. Well, basically, 
you know, and you know, one of the things that I want to kind of caution the the audience and and any sense of readers of the book, this is not like a heavy heavy science book. I just trying to present enough science so that people will understand how to create your own reality, and 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 that does require a bit of getting into because you, I can't just come up with answers that that aren't that aren't justifiable. But anyway, one of the one of the important key parts of this is that the universe is, is you know, it's, it's the observer is the, is the controller of things. And that kind of gets to, you know, uh, that thought creates all. That basically, that we actually, uh, you know, that observing a fact is what actually makes a fact real to us. And then also observing a fact is what is, is, it gives it, gives that, gives that, whatever it is you're observing, additional energy to actually make that manifest for others as well. So that, you know, knowledge of something. You know, for example, if you were in a room and there was, I forget what these paintings are, but they were the rage, I don't know, 15 years ago, where it looked like a whole bunch of random dots and blobs and you look at it and all of a sudden now you see a triceratops, you know, uh, that's actually, you know, you know, eating grass or something, okay? And and you have to look at it and stare at it for a long time, and you can see this so clearly. Well, once you see it, you can, the other people in the room begin to see it very quickly once the first person sees it. And that also is not explainable. So it's almost like that the, there it is, that's a reality, but the reality is kind of hidden until the observer sees it, when the observer sees it, then it actually it actually then becomes real to the observer, and it actually adds sustenance, if you would, to that actual reality for somebody else. I don't know if that's yeah. you know tunes yeah. into your you know as an answer there, but that's you know mm-hmm. uh, at least an answer to what I thought you asked. Sure. Hey Joe. Mm-hmm. Before we. Uh... Before we let you uh, 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 say goodbye to the audience for tonight, um, is there anything that you want you want to leave them uh, uh, with tonight? Uh, any thoughts or um, you know anything you're currently working on, or or just uh, now's your chance. This is an open forum for you to uh, uh, you know give them your final thoughts for the night, if if you would, well, sir. Well, well, thank you very much. And uh, well, first of all, I appreciate this. This has been you know a lot of fun to talk about this. The questions have been good. And it's probably a lot more questions that hopefully we can we can address in another thing. But I didn't want folks to think that this is a you know a science book. It's not that at all, and that right. there is a very very simple book uh, coming out in a while. So for folks that just kind of want to get a surface understanding of what goes on in nature and then how to use that to create reality, um, you know, the third book, which is coming out probably the end of September, a little bit before then would be a cup of tea, and it's also the least expensive of the, of the three. It's, uh, you know, $15, $16, so it's not bad. Uh, but, you know, this is enjoyable, and really, uh, I think folks, if they understood and saw some of the material in the book, it would make an awful lot of sense to them that we actually make events happen by thinking of something that actually is going to help somebody else, and that person is, if you're fulfilling a need, that somebody else that somebody else is actually 
giving you something in return. So this, this whole concept of reciprocity, it's a very natural law of nature. It's a very natural law of human nature. And that's one of the things that I think we've kind of moved away from in our, in our society, in a maybe a little bit more hedonistic society where folks gain at other people's loss. So, well, I don't so want to get so, so, so blocks, but part of it. I wanted to point out to everyone that, that I've actually purchased uh, your second edition because I'm not real thick into science, but I, but I want to know enough of it to, to understand the tools. And, uh, sure. Uh, you know, I, I, uh, I want to, you know, e- echo your sentiment. It, it's not uh, all about science. Um, I can promise everyone out there, and those of you who know me, if it was a science book, I would not have read it or bought it or right. anything. So, so uh, you know, and, 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 and just as a final point for me, uh, you know, Joe and I uh, had talked uh, a few times before the, before the show, and, uh, you know, I, I told Joe that, that, quite honestly, and like most of you uh, who I know is going to echo this with me, I'm tired of the BS books that I'm buying. I'm tired of, uh, of, of things like... Uh, you know all these other you know fairy tales. I call them fairy tales. I have a whole bookshelf full of fairy tales, and and uh, you know there's a couple books books on my shelf now that that uh, I really put a lot of stock in, and uh, Joe's book is one of them. So I just wanted to you know uh, you know take it from me. I, I I'm not a big science guy, um, and um, I'm already enjoying my experience with uh, with the second edition of the book. Well, great. Thank you. And, and I think that the more you know, the more we can talk about that, uh, and you know, and maybe even look at some of the questions that we couldn't have answered, and that we are sorry that we're running out of time, but it did go by quickly, and uh, and I hope it was enjoyable for the listeners, and um, and certainly we learned from you know from getting the questions and then talking about them. These are great. These are great subjects. Yes, they are. Yes, they are. Very important subjects. Very yes. Important subjects. Our goal, as everyone knows, uh, is to empower all of you while empowering ourselves. And, uh, you know, if you don't want to take it from Joe about, the, uh, about what he's talking about, giving and receiving, you have to do both. Uh, you know, if you don't want to believe Joe, uh, look at Deepak Chopra and some of these other guys. They, they, are, they are saying the same things. They are saying the same things. Um, you know, so, so, you know, if you won't take it from me or take it from Joe, uh, you know, look around because lots of people are starting to understand that that's the way it has to be. Yeah, you know, to, to just to that point, you know, I I was listening in uh, to the early early part of the show when you were talking about heroes, and mm-hmm. uh, and and frankly, the reason I was listening in was to make sure that I had, you know, signed in enough so that I, so that when I was ready to go, that I was ready to go. Uh, but you know, I, mean, I was kind of interested in that as well. And you talked about. Uh, this individual that, you know, that was developing wheelchairs and so forth and so on, and, you know, he wasn't getting paid for it, and this was his life to kind of empower, if you would, you know, po- folks that, uh, you know, little kids or, you know, or young adults, whatever, in Iraq, which is amazing statistic, by the way, that how many of them, you know, are uh, incapacitated, incapacitated in some regard. Well, that giving that that person is doing is a fundamental human nature, um, you know, <laughs> trait. That he he is one of the happiest people I'm sure on this planet for doing what he's doing. 
and I explain in the book why that is the case. And he's getting so much, maybe not in monetary, you know, value, but it would be nice if he could get, and gosh, I wish the heck I, you know, find out who he is and, and help contribute to him. But he's getting so much back for what he gives. And that's a perfect example. You know, it's just a, by coincidence, and it's probably not a coincidence because probably every hero, uh, Justin, that you're coming up with probably exemplifies the very point that you're making. But that one there certainly resonates with me. That here's an individual that's doing nothing but giving, and he is getting back, you know, happiness and, and just his endorphins and just living life and can't wait to get up the next day, you know. And, um, and you think of people like, like the mythical Scrooge, okay, who had all the money and he was screwing the people working for him. The guy was miserable, yeah, you know. Sure, and and sure so he had his enlightening dream, and then he became happy, you know. So, you know, uh, and, and this is a person that's already, he's involved to see that. I mean, most of us don't have the position to do that. Most of us can't do it. But it just gives you an idea of, of how you gain by helping others gain. And it's enormous. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.